This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 497 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Colin Broderick. Now, Colin was born and raised in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, so has a very unique perspective, not only of the conflict that was going on there, but also through that same lens, how it applies to some of the division that we're seeing today. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood through to immigrating to England and ultimately the US, his incredible story of the depths of addiction he found himself in, but ultimately how writing was his journey out. So I can't illustrate how many lessons and takeaways there are from this conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Colin Broderick. Enjoy. Colin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we've talked about this for quite a long time now, so uh, I'm glad that we're getting to sit down and finally do it. Glad to be here, James. Uh, I think I think we've been talking about doing this for about a year now. Yeah, I think it was early COVID. Sure. I hate that we use that as a metric, but yeah. <laughs> early COVID, there it is. There's the metric. Yes, and I'm so glad that everything's fine now and it's all back to normal and everyone's... <laughs> 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 yeah post covid yes so yeah. I've, I've been watching i've been trying to go home at the moment and I've, i keep googling travel between the us and the uk and one minute it's like oh there's you know it's looking positive you know then literally the next day us won't allow anyone from the uk the delta variant and then the next day oh it's optimistic we're probably going to be able to go i mean it, day by day it changes so i don't know if you've had the same thing trying to go back or not but it's maddening you know, for for me, I have given up uh, thinking about going back to Ireland. Last year was the first year I didn't take the family back in a long time. And I've sort of resigned myself to the fact that I don't want to take the family through an airport and get on an airplane uh, and and go through that whole thing right now. It's just too much uncertainty. Uh, my My big thing at the moment is... Uh, we're supposed to be having a movie premiere for my new movie in Manhattan in September. And I'm having trouble even committing to that because, you know, the idea of uh, 300 people in a theater is, is now still, you know, or back to feeling very, you know, I'm fully vax. I'm fully vaccinated, but uh, being in a room with 300 people after being, you know, very, uh, I, I've been, you know, really good about not being around people a lot, you know, people on my block. 
but I, I haven't done much traveling. I haven't been around people. I haven't done any traveling, really. I haven't, I haven't been on a plane since this thing started. So, uh, you know, the idea of going back and being social again brings a, a lot of anxiety with it. And just in the last few weeks with this new Delta variant and stuff, you know, just, just today, uh, you know, because I have... I have kids who are going back to school in September, and just today the CDC announced at three o'clock this afternoon that they're advising that all kids wear masks full time in school again. Even vaccinated so, kids. Even vaccinated. So basically, kids. This, the message is: Hey, remember we told you all that you were selfish, you didn't get vaccinated, and if you do, that's the solution to the problem. Now that's been completely disregarded, which just drives me crazy because i wasn't super excited about getting the vaccination i don't take the flu shot every year i do have other shots to, to be able to do my job but i did it you know, i'm like this is going to be a barrier to travel let me do it let me be part of the perceived solution and then the rug comes out from under your feet and they're like ah we're just messing with you now you've got the vaccination you still need to wear masks so i i, I don't understand the thinking behind it well, I think part of that problem, the science behind it is there are so many people who are not vaccinated. And unless you have everybody in the same boat, they have, you know, you have what's called now a crossover. So somebody like myself who is fully vaccinated could get sick, but not hospitalization sick. So I'm glad I'm vaccinated. Uh, I do feel like... Uh, I do feel like we're not out of the woods and I feel like whatever is happening now when they're talking about a new variant, I think, or I'm sort of at a place where my whole priority is protecting my family, my wife and my kids. That's it. I want to keep the unit and, and survive and get through to the other side of this thing in one piece and uh, and also do my own civic duty by trying to protect others. I try to wear a mask where I can. I've gone back to wearing a mask again when I go into a store, something I hadn't been doing for a while. But uh, I feel like we're, until everybody's in the same boat, which seems like, is is that possible? It's never going to happen, no. So, <laughs> it's going to happen. No. So at what point do you draw a line in the sand and be like, all right, we've done everything that you were asked? Because my thing is, they use examples, you know, whether like cholera or, you know, whatever, I mean, cholera is a bad example, we didn't get vaccinated for that. But, you know, smallpox or whatever, oh, we, we eliminated that through vaccinations. Well, great, then this will work too. Or it'll protect you. It wasn't like, well, you know, I kind of got mild smallpox. No, you, you didn't get smallpox because you had the vaccination. So just coming from the medical background and all we were taught in microbiology, I feel that a lot of this information completely contradicts itself. And what drives me crazy is the one thing that every single human being can control is their own health, their own immunity through what they eat, how they move, if they meditate, you know, how well they sleep. These are completely controllable things that will boost your immune system. But to me, the message is none of that. They carry on with the obesity epidemic. That's fine. Carry on with the, you know, the opioid epidemic, but just make sure you wear a mask and stick a needle in your arm. So do you think? Do you, so you're not a believer in the vaccine? Is that what I? What no, I'm no, and that's what's funny is is people assume you're one side or the other. I'm standing in the middle. I'm someone who has had the vaccination, fully vaccinated. My twelve, my, excuse me, my thirteen year old son has been fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. My wife has been fully vaccinated. My dog hasn't. She's taken her chances. 
Um, right. <laughs> but no, but, but I've had that and I've worn the mask and I've isolated and I've locked down when they told us. I've done everything we have for a year and a half. But coming mm-hmm. from the first responder space, the last year and a half, I've got to speak to doctors and nurses and paramedics all over the world. And the message mm-hmm. I get over and over again are the numbers aren't even close to what we were worried about. It's absolutely a real thing. But the numbers don't warrant shutting down the country where, you know what I mean? So, the, but what you can control, we haven't. The gyms were closed down, but the fast food places have been open the whole time, you know? So to me, the message isn't about the wellness of the nation because you're, you're not walking the walk as, as a government, you know? The gyms and all the wellness places should have been, you know, open. The parks shouldn't have been wrapped in warning tapes and no one can, God forbid, use a swing or, you know, walk in a park. Um, so that's what I, I think it's just been a lot of, a lot of misinformation, a lot of fear mongering, a lot of hypocrisy. So let me ask you this now, because this is, this is interesting to me because, uh, obviously I feel a little bit differently. Do you think that, or do you believe that like 570,000 or whatever people have died in the U S because of COVID? No, I think that some people absolutely have died because of COVID the same way as some people. I'm talking about, so let's focus on healthy people. No, no pre-existing or, or no obvious pre-existing. As a paramedic, I've had people have triple A's, aortic aneurysms. Their, their hose just pops off the coupling and they bleed out then. I've had people with brain bleeds die on me. Young, young, healthy people. You know, I've had young, healthy people have strokes. Young, healthy people that get hit on the football field and have an arrhythmia that causes them to have a cardiac arrest. So those anomalies happen. But what I'm seeing is COVID is a mirror to a nation's health. And I think that's why, uh, for example, Sweden, Norway, Finland, their numbers have been pretty good. Um, New Zealand overall is a pretty active, healthy population. Their numbers have been pretty good because the people dying are... You know, again, there's, there's a lot, in my opinion, far fewer really, really sick people in their countries than there are here. So 70% of the U.S. is morbidly obese or overweight, 70% of our country. So what we do see as paramedics, as, you know, doctors and nurses, are lots and lots of lots of really sick people who COVID finished off. So it was absolutely the last nail in the coffin. But had those people been healthy people... I think the death rate would have been a fraction, but that's what drives me crazy. And what do you think is happening in the UK then? Because now I think they're opening everything up. Is it the same issue there that they're obese or unhealthy? Um, I think, I think, yeah, that's that's what I'm getting. Yeah, that's what I'm getting from most people. And again, I'm not masquerading as the expert. I spent a, this year and a half added an episode to this show. Um, to get as many people in all the different holistic spaces, you know, and when I say holistic, you know, just middle of the road, common sense, you know, um, creating healthy humans. And it's been the same message, whether it's, you know, from the UK or I'm just trying to think where other guests have been. I have people from India, from, you know, all over the place. Um, and yeah, there are pockets where it's bad. And with the UK specifically, I think what really overwhelmed them is, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of the NHS. I think that the model that they have there is a truly altruistic philosophy that takes care of everyone in the nation. Um, but what we've seen since you and I were kids is, you know, in, in the UK is them just cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting the NHS to where they're bare bones. And so now they're overwhelmed because they're understaffed, you know, as simple as that. Um, and I've heard that again from, from the people there. So I think if, if the NHS was well funded, well staffed, I don't think you would have been overwhelmed. Now you always have pockets. Any inner city in America, there are people in the hallways 
because I've been that medic for years and years and years waiting for a patient to get a bed any time of the year. So you take that same hospital, add COVID in or Ebola or, you know, whatever sweeps through, then you're going to add to that, that overwhelming element. And within that, obviously, are some people that are really, really sick that end up dying and it's heartbreaking. So, so, so you don't think that Johnson's a bit of a douche? <laughs> uh, Boris? For me, I look at, I look at what's happening because I'm from the UK. I'm from Northern Ireland. And I look at him and I just think this guy, number one, should never have been in power. Number two, the country is basically off the rails. And I'm talking about me being a citizen. I'm a, I'm a British citizen from Northern Ireland. I have a British passport. Uh, so it's not like I'm coming down on the whole English thing. I feel like the whole nation has gone completely off the rails. Yeah, well, I think the same even with the U with the US too. I think you know the people that are supposed to have led us, and I'm using air quotes for everyone that can't see this. You know, it just it screams that our machine is broken. The way that we select the the leaders of the world in many many countries, the UK and the US specifically, is horrible because. I don't think that Trump or Biden or or Johnson back in the UK, I think they've done an awful job. I think we've seen divide and conquer, not unify. So, well, I certainly think that uh, we're we're in a weird. We can certainly agree that we're in probably uh, the weirdest moment of you know. Maybe that's not fair to say maybe not the weirdest moment of my life as far as division goes because I grew up in Northern Ireland. I saw uh, division to the ultimate degree be between the Irish and the English and, you know, the IRA and the British Army and and uh, Catholics and Protestants. So I grew up in that environment. I know exactly what it's like to have one side that's militant against another side that's militant and everybody, you know, it's it's an eye for an eye until everybody's dead. And we are at a point now that I never thought I'd see in this country where, you know, it's interesting. I'm always open to uh, because I very much believe in uh, that I feel very relieved that Biden has come in and gotten rid of Trump because I felt like Trump was out of completion. Another guy like Johnson, who never should have been in a position of power because he's a, an egomaniac and self-centered and wasn't really about the country as much as he was about himself so i'm glad to see some sense of normalcy come back in but what i've what has been most shocking is the the realization that democrats and republicans are, are further apart than ever and when i came to america the two were so close together I, could, I couldn't even tell when pe people would try to explain to me what a Democrat or a Republican was, I couldn't even tell what the difference was. They were practically the same people. And it was something you never thought about. You never would have defined a friend or a relation or somebody on your block by being either a Democrat or a Republican. And now it's literally the most defining characteristic of American society. Are you a are, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? And it's become this, uh, which is when what's really strange for me, and you know, one of the the reasons I keep logging out of social media and taking a, a mental health break from it all for a while, is that 
I know both Democrats and Republicans and, you know, I live on a block where uh, there's probably an equal division of Democrats and Republicans and they're all good people. Um, Mm -hmm. Every single one of them I would trust with uh, my children. Every single one of them is somebody I would say, hey, dude, my battery's flat. Could you give me a jump start? And uh, we're all sort of in this together. And when I see it in the in the microcosm like that in the neighborhood, it's very easy to see that we're all just people. How has it has become this sort of uh, engine of division, I think, has more to do with uh, how politics has sort of collided with technology and with social media platforms and algorithms. When you have a social media platform like Twitter or Facebook, uh, where algorithms are specifically designed to, uh, to, to, to benefit those who create division, that it's, it's only natural because we're just human beings and the computers in many regards are much smarter than we are. that people wind up getting sucked into this you know i'd get on twitter in the morning and just tweet uh what are we going to fight about today because you know sort of joking because it just seems to be you could pick 20 fights in the same day stuff that you weren't even aware of before you got out of bed but you but if you get into it it's almost like you have this constant rage machine that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You want to jump on a cause, here it is. You want to stay on this side of it, great. We've got an opposition right here. Everybody keep going at it. Meanwhile, the algorithms keep everybody engaged with the the, 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 the actual social media website. And who benefits? The people who own that because all they're doing is collecting data. And data is the number one issue. (laughs) We are being basically drained by machines, all our data, and they don't give a damn. They don't give a damn if the whole world implodes. They don't care if we all die of COVID or cancer or take knives to each other in the street. What they care about is the bottom line. And the bottom line right now and the race for the top is global dominance is all about uh, information and data. That's it. That's and that's what we're being reduced to. And I think that what's happened is people have uh, are, are, are so blinded and so addicted to the rage and so addicted to the the sort of conflict that it gives some feeling of being alive. It distracts us from the reality that perhaps maybe we're a little bit depressed or sad or lonely. And we have, we can just keep going in this direction. Go, go, go. And, uh, and that's, that's, that is, I think, what's going to destroy or is destroyed, not going to, it's currently destroying, uh, not just, not just uh, personal relationships, but nations and, you know, basically the social structure we've relied on for the last hundred and few hundred years. Uh, And when you think about 
you know, what America is, and, and excuse me here for going on a rant about this, you know, we are such a, a baby when it comes to like, even, even, even the UK, you think about who we are. Like I, I read, I read to my son at night and he's a, he's into dinosaurs and every night we, we he, he has me reading encyclopedias about dinosaurs and I'm saying, oh, the dinosaurs this age was 150 million years ago, or this was 200 million years ago. And then they found these bones in New Mexico. And, you know, we think we're so goddamn important. We're a blip. We're a blip. We're an angry blip on the surface of this beautiful planet who have gotten so off the rails in the last 20, 30 years and maybe in the last hundred since the beginning of, you know, you know the, the, the invention of uh, the cars and, and, and the airplanes. Uh, basically, before that, there was more of an agrarian sort of survivalist sort of energy in the world. But really, in the last hundred years, we've come to the point of, you know, basically on the verge of our own extinct extinction. <laughs> and, and we're doing nothing to stop it. Not only are we doing nothing to stop it, we have our foot on the pedal, flat out, going harder than ever because the companies and the CEOs have to keep meeting the bottom line. You got to pay off the politicians. You got to keep meeting that bottom line. Who needs to be bought? What, what law do we have to rewrite to keep the machine running? There's, there's no, nobody solving uh, greenhouse gases. It's nonsense. We're going to burn it out and there's going to be no change until the whole place is in flames. And we're in the street with knives. That's as far as I can see. That's the only time people are going to go, oh, Jesus, this this isn't going well. <laughs> yeah, well, no, and I, I talk about this, you know, a lot. And I think the problem is it depends which lens you look through. You know, I I find to not find i mean they come across my radar all the time beautiful stories of humanity that i post all the time and people are like oh you know i love that you find this I love that you post it i'm like this is everywhere the problem is like you yeah. said depending on what you choose to click on you choose which road your social media your cable tv whatever it is goes and when you look at back at all the problems that we've had i'm watching this great um show on Netflix, I forget what it's called now, um, but it was about you know how to become a what was the word they used? Tyrant. Tyrant. Yes, that that one. And you know, again, a single person who wants all the money, all the power. And that is the fundamental thing. You look at slavery. It wasn't all white people had slaves. It was a few greedy shitbags that brought them over from Africa. And it was a few greedy shitbags in Africa that sold them in the first place. You know, when you look at um you know, the, like you said, the greenhouse gases and all that. I mean, there's a very simple solution, but if you reverse engineer, I think so many problems that we have, you will see that the few are benefiting. Perfect example, CNN, Fox, both sides. They just want you to watch so they can sell advertising space. When you think that your information boils down to a corporation getting rich and they are literally creating environments where people are rioting and, as you said, stabbing each other, shooting each other on national television, Therein lies the problem, but you're allowing yourselves to be to be drawn into this game where very, very, very few people are going to gain from it. And and you you just said it. You know, you 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 hear these stories. 
these beautiful heart stories, heartwarming stories of love and compassion and empathy, that stuff is not rewarded in the algorithms. Oh, no. There's no. That is not clickbait. It's not. It's not. It's not going to generate any data. It's not going to keep people involved. Oh, here's a nice story. It doesn't work. What works better than that is rage, anger. Here's an emergency. Click on CNN. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. Twenty four hours a day. Breaking news. How could it be breaking news? I switch off the TV. I go fishing, and I realize after two weeks of not being on social media. Media. Oh, nothing's happened. I'm looking out the window. No bomb went off. Nobody crashed their car down the street. Literally not, nothing happened. I switched the TV back on and it's like the world is ending today. But the good thing is you can get you can get a weather update every 10 minutes. So that's good. Because <laughs> you can't do that by walking outside and going, oh, it's cloudy. It's probably going to rain. No, let me turn on the TV and find out if it's going to rain. And it's the same, whether it's Fox News, CNN, doesn't really matter. It's, it's, again, it's generating and it's not, hey, guys, breaking news. Look at this wonderful thing that happened and look at this cute puppy that this guy saved. It's not it's because that doesn't generate. It doesn't keep people glued. So what's happened is you have this. It, it is a machine that has been driven solely by the algorithms of social media. I think that was the thing that sort of sped everything up in the end and sort of uh, annihilated our sense of cultural decency. And, you know, up until 15, 20 years ago, before the advent of uh, this fucking thing <laughs> <laughs> the phone and i have an iphone uh, like everybody else but before uh, the advent of the the cell phone and the laptop and the computer there was uh before the rise of cnn msnbc before all that there was uh everything lived at a slower pace so there was time to hear a story there was time to have a conversation there was time to hear the other side of the argument you know you look back 30 40 years ago I've, i'm one of the last you know uh, it's my generation was the generation that sort of bridged that uh, divide between you know me being a kid in my grandparents cottage uh, and they didn't have electric, they didn't have a phone, they didn't have running water, and you sat down and there were little oil lamps on the wall and, you know, the old men would be smoking their pipes and people would be talking and having tea and telling stories and and this would go on until it would be so dark you couldn't even see across the room and somebody would get up and light the oil lamp and light the fire and nobody was in a hurry to go anywhere. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if the generation that are born in the last 20 years know how to have a conversation. You know, I look at my own children and I try to instill in them some some sense of, conversation and you know I, I make sure that I engage with them but I'm not sure that that's something that they're 
being uh, that they're getting in the world outside of uh, being at home. It's almost like this antiquated thing. Oh, you're going to sit down and have a conversation and get to know somebody on uh, on a level that is outside of here's their picture, which is distorted, and here's their image, and here's their tweet, and here's this cute thing they said, and everybody's hidden be- behind a- an avatar of themselves that is uh, a better looking version or a version that they deem uh, more uh, uh, more acceptable than what they are themselves, and we've all learned and I've you know I'm guilty of it myself you know what do you choose to post on social media what do you choose to post on uh, an Instagram or on Facebook and it's very easy to fall into the trap of you know making making my life look better than what it is and again because hey I'm depressed and uh, I didn't sleep very well last night, and I'm kind of worried about mankind is not great clickbait. It's not. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't fall into the river of bullshit that is just roaring along. Uh, I, I, I just sort of. It doesn't. It, it sits sort of on on the shore of all that, like this weird. Like, what the fuck is that guy talking about? <laughs> what do you mean, kindness and compassion? Throw some shit at them. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so when we talk about whether it's because it, because what's happening is you, you, we're getting all these different names: uh, COVID, vaccines. Uh, uh, in the Middle East, it's the Arab and the Jewish. It's uh, Republicans and Democrats. Whatever it is, we're just—it's division, 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 division. You're on this side, I'm on that side. You're on this side, I'm on that side. And, and to the to the point that we have even down to the idea of what kids are growing up now with identity issues. It's like there are so many warring factions. Uh, battling for acceptance and openness and and it's like it's it's not it's it almost feels more like a war than uh than uh than 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 a sort of but but my 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 one feeling is this james and it's it's my one optimistic sort of little voice in the back of my head is that you know things have been broken for for so long you know, we've lived in a very sexist, uh, male-dominated culture. We've lived in a very acceptable, uh, racist-based uh, culture. And it's sort of like this is the scream from the other side saying, fuck you guys, we're here. And it's like this massive push and the pendulum gets swung so far the other way. And then my optimistic little voice says, it will swing back again towards the center and things will calm down again a little bit better. And there will be a little, we'll have evolved perhaps a a little better and, and be more open to each other. But until that happens, the pendulum has to go all the way out to the other end and we run the risk of burning it all to the ground. Or being so uh, being so distracted that we don't catch 
the planet in time to save it because we're fucked. This thing, this thing we're on, we're like a bunch of ants. You know, human race is like a bunch of ants on this little thing called Earth. And we're just eating and killing and burning up all the resources. And eventually, you know, the planet says, fuck these ants. <laughs> I've been around for millions of years. I don't need this shit. Let's do the same as Let's we did to the dinosaurs. <laughs> Let's get rid of these fuckers. Let's get rid of these fuckers. And, you know, wipe it all out and let's begin again. And, you know, who cares? Who cares? 150, 200 million years. We matter. What we've done in the last 2000 years matter. Dude, we could be get fucking wiped out and nobody would even know we were here. <laughs> Apart from those aliens <laughs> hanging out in uh, Area 50, all whatever it is. <laughs> all our big important, all the shit that's so important that we're freaking out about, that we're going to lose our minds about today, doesn't mean shit in the grand scheme of things. Well, you touched on your early life. So I think this is a great segue. And obviously, we, we haven't even started, you know, the, the usual route that I do and we're 30 minutes in, but that's what I love about podcasts. <laughs> this is actually a, a real conversation where you allow each other to talk and you listen. Yeah. Um, but you grew up in a place that there was a lot of genuine war. It was a war zone. But at the same time, you, you know, you had a childhood like everyone else. So starting at the very beginning, tell me, tell me where you were born and tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings you had. So, so it's interesting because I'm Northern Irish. Uh, my story actually began in Birmingham, England, because my parents, Michael and Claire had gone over to uh, England and my older brother and uh, myself, we were born there. And after I was two months old, they moved back home to Northern Ireland. But I was actually born in England. But uh, so 1968, the year I was born, you know, is the year that is credited as the beginning of what was known as the Troubles in uh, Northern Ireland. And the Troubles, for anybody that doesn't know, it was, a, it was sort of a very casual euphemism for a very brutal war that went on between the English and the Irish over the occupation of the northern six counties of Ireland and uh, the Irish Catholics who lived in Northern Ireland wanted the, the English Protestants to leave and it became the sectarian thing. It became religious. It wasn't supposed to be religious, but somehow the line, the political line got drawn right down the middle between Catholics and Protestants and it almost became, it, that's why they call it a sectarian war, which was, it was really a political war. It was between, you know, uh, England and Ireland, but it became sectarian because it was in the communities, it was small, it was here's my neighbor, and like here, it's like the, the, what I say about the Republicans and the Democrats, the line gets very evenly drawn. So I grew up in a Catholic family, an Irish Catholic family in Northern Ireland, and uh, Irish people in Northern Ireland were being treated like secondhand citizens 
uh, it, to, to sort of say what the war was about. So all the best jobs were being given to the British or those in support of the British involvement in Northern Ireland. They would get like all the good uh, government jobs. They would get all the good government housing and Catholics were being treated as uh, secondhand citizens and also made to feel like they had to be watched. So it was like we became this sort of entity in our own country where we were a threat to, you know, any any Catholic was potentially an IRA man. Uh, or, or you know, a friend or a family member of an IRA man. So the division was very deeply rooted. The, when I went to school in Northern Ireland, there were Catholic. The Catholics went to Catholic schools. The Protestants went to Protestant schools. Catholics went to Catholic bars. Protestants went to Protestant bars. And you did not go. You never crossed that line. If you met a Protestant on the street and you didn't know him, you didn't talk to him. You, you sat down beside a guy on the bus or a plane and he was Protestant. The first thing you did, <laughs> first thing you did was ask a guy's name. Guy's name was William. You knew right away, this guy's a Protestant. That's an English name. And Irish people, oh, he's O'Doherty. He's an Irish guy. Oh, no. You know, and that's the first thing you would do. Oh, hey, how are you doing? Oh, what's your name? And you would gauge the guy. If you couldn't tell by looking at him, and sometimes you could just tell right away. I tell people that growing up in Northern Ireland, I could tell a Protestant just by looking at him walking down the street. And they would say, how would that be possible? You guys were all white. And I, you would just know. It was just, it was bred into us. So, you know, we grew up in that sort of environment. And then you have, you know, I had friends of mine who were, you know, did get involved uh, militarily in, in what was happening. And, you know, I had good friends who were shot and killed by the British forces in Northern Ireland, uh, friends who were assassinated by the SAS in Northern Ireland, guys who could have just been as easily, uh, during the time of Thatcher especially, Thatcher had a sort of unwritten, uh, she introduced a shoot-to-kill policy in Northern Ireland, which was basically... Some of these we're arresting these guys and they're putting them back on the street. And not nothing's getting solved. Like, don't fucking take them in. Shoot them. And it became this thing where it was almost like uh, it was like the Wild West. So now you have everybody. It's a tit for tat. So the British forces kill one of ours and we kill one of our theirs. And that went back and forward for you know, 30 years. And there's two images. One is 1972 uh, in Derry City. You have the image of the the priest with the little white flag and he's waving it and they're carrying the boy, Jackie Duddy. And Jackie Duddy was shot. He was, uh, I think he was, was he, was he 14 or 16 years old? And there were 14 people killed that day. And that sort of marks the beginning of the actual war. And then in uh, 30 years later, in uh, 1998, in uh, my local village in Oma, you had the Oma bombing, which was an IRA bomb uh, that went off in a local in our local village and killed uh, 
31 people and maimed 200. And it devastated, devastated our entire community. Uh, people I know died in that uh, bomb. My parents were 50, 50 yards away when the bomb went off. Uh, my, my cousin Roisin was 15 yards away from the the vehicle that exploded the people all the people she was with were killed but uh it, it was it was just devastating and it be, it was such a brutal it was an uh, the story is the ira guys were driving the bomb in and the vehicle into the village and they had called ahead and said we're we're bringing a bomb into the courthouse the police evacuated everybody and met the vehicle coming in and everybody who was being evacuated basically were crammed around the vehicle with the bomb in it. And the two idiots in the car got out, didn't warn anybody, and walked away from the ticking bomb. And uh, and that was so horrific that because it was just innocent, it wasn't people who were involved militarily. It was Catholics, it was Protestants, it was mothers, grandmothers, children who were just annihilated. Uh, my friend Avril Grimes was uh, nine months pregnant uh, with twins. And she was holding her five-year-old daughter's hand and her mother's hand and all three generations were wiped out. And, you know, it was so horrific that people just said, enough, enough of this. And that was sort of the end of... That marked the end of the bombing and the shooting and people just said, you know, we're not protecting this anymore in our communities. We're not staying silent. We're not saying like, this is okay. We know this guy's doing it and this British soldier doing it. No, fuck all that shit. And, you know, and then there was the, uh, the peace agreement that Clinton helped uh, broker uh, with Jerry Adams and uh, the British and that sort of it has been the sort of bedrock of peace in Northern Ireland up until quite recently, actually, uh, until Johnson now, who's in, who's messing with the whole thing and the border and the peace agreement and really running a risk of on upending the entire situation again uh, with Brexit and how it affects Northern Ireland, uh, which is horrible to be from there and, and see that we've had peace for this long and see that that sort of that tension is sort of there again a little bit, but uh, but yeah, that was that was my childhood uh, growing up in Northern Ireland, and you know I lost I lost good friends. I went I, when I was eighteen. Uh, Loch Gall, the Loch Gall massacre happened, and there were eight young IRA boys who were uh, shot and killed. They were on their way to uh, attack a police station. They had been set up. They were surrounded and they were by the SAS. The SAS assassinated them rather than taking them into uh, arresting them. They decided uh, to wipe them out. And uh, I went to three wakes in one afternoon, uh, boys that I knew. And it was horrific. It was horrific. Horrific. Uh, I, did, I didn't realize until much, much later, James, the... I, I didn't I didn't realize fully until much later first of all that I'd grown up in a war it's like it's like a goldfish you know being in a bowl that's the whole world you don't know anything beyond 
that was that I felt like this is just the world. And, uh, you know, we did everything that boys do or, or, or in, in anywhere. You know, you grow up, you buy a car, you date, you do all these things. It wasn't like, oh, we're living in a war zone and we'd hear bombs. And it was like, we would be in a bar, in a pub, and they'd say there's a bomb. Everybody run. And we'd be like, fuck that. I'm finishing my pint. <laughs> and literally, that's how, you know, they'd be dragging you out the door. It literally in the, in bars that were blown up. <laughs> yeah, well, you see that in, in the Gaza Strip. I mean, you know, you saw that even even to an extent. I think the London bombings, the the speed that the British people went, you know, basically, you're not scaring us, and they all went back to work after. I mean, not not like minutes after, but yeah. the the moment yeah. they got back. I mean, I think that stems from the troubles as well and it's interesting because i've talked about this a few times and you and i had a great conversation you know when we first talked but i grew up with a different perspective of course i was getting the british lens or the you know the yeah i guess british english whatever you want to put it but i grew up next to an mod base and i watched men women and children blown up on the mainland and i had to sweep under my car for bombs because we were right next to this base so i didn't have the violence around me you know, like directly around me like you did, but it was a different thing. And what just drives me crazy, I've always thought of this way. I think we talked about it before. England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales are two tiny little pebbles in the middle of the Atlantic. The fact that we're divided and see ourselves completely differently, like, you know, people talk to me, oh, do you, do you, do you hate the Scottish or the Welsh? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? For a start, Scottish, Irish, English, and, and Welsh blood flows through my veins. You can't be from the UK and not be, you know, a part of everything. I'm, aside from the Romans, the Danes, the Saxons, the, you know, the Vikings, everyone else that came and raped and pillaged our little rocks and then pissed off again. So the, when, you know, like you said, it's such a, a powerful perspective because there you get a group, you know, the Irish nation. Now you get North and South. Now you get Protestant and Catholic, and it mirrors what we're seeing at the moment. Ireland was men, women, and children that wanted to see their generations grow, wanted to see them happy, wanted to feed them, wanted to clothe them, put a roof over their head, as were the English, as were the Scottish, as were the Welsh. But a few people, well, I'm the king of whatever. I want to conquer this country. Hey, come die on the, the fields of England for me. You know, so we can win the war and this can be my castle. So it, it whether you go back a hundred years or a thousand years, it's the same thing, whether it's churches, whether it's governments, a few greedy, greedy people can rile up a whole bunch of people to murder while they sit back in their castle and watch. And I think it's disgusting. To me, the English, Irish, Scottish and Welsh are all my people. And if there was a name for all four of our countries, that's what I would describe my nationality because I don't see any division between the four of us personally. So so what was really interesting for me, of course, and the big eye-opener then was to go live in London uh, at 18 years of age. I, I, you know, there was no work in Northern Ireland for a young Catholic boy. You couldn't make a wage. So I got on the plane and moved to London, where as a carpenter or a painter or construction, you could make great money. And I was working with, uh, you know, you get to meet... I was squatting in, in North London, Harlesden, and, uh, you know, I get to meet young English guys from up the country who were, who were like, li living and squatting with us. And it was, like, this, ah, like, we had this, we were, like, 
we were like animal, like like wild animals meeting each other, like putting a paw out, like oh, uh, you know. <laughs> and but we got to know each other, and we all had the same fucking problems. Yep. All exactly the same problems. We were the same fucking people. And there's this all of a sudden this aha moment of like, oh my god, you know, what is all this about? And that was the first sort of eye opener, and really probably the impetus for me saying fuck all this shit uh, excuse my french and I, I you know getting on a plane and saying i'm gone i went to new york i moved to new york when i was 20 years old and even in new york i i came here and it was like i was living in an irish community and i i felt like oh my god i'm still stuck in this irish thing here i am in, in america and i'm in an irish community and i got on a plane and moved to San Francisco to get further away from it. I was 21 years old and I just kept trying to move. I just wanted to be away from everybody. I didn't, I was so sick of it all. So sick of all the labels. And, and I think that's why when I think about what's happening in America today, it really, really hurts me because the America that I came to then was, and of course I'm coming at it from I'm a privileged white guy, right? So my experience is different. But I was, I loved it. I came over here and for the first time in my life, I didn't have to hide that I was Catholic and Irish. Nobody was looking at me like I was weird. It was, I was actually being celebrated. Like, oh, hey, you're Irish. Wonderful. I wasn't a villain. I wasn't a terrorist. And that was the first time in my life that I had that feeling. Oh, my God. I'm just fucking one of the people and that was why i fell in love with america it was like oh i get it now i get why i get how this country was formed they said fuck the crown and all this division and we need to just live democratically and every your dollars as good as the next guy and let's all get along and fuck religion and blah 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 and you know we had uh, there <laughs> what's the old saying there was a camelot and we we had it i feel like the maybe the the ideal the ideal is very very uh intoxicating it's very real uh but it didn't last very long we sort of and 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 i think coming from northern ireland uh when i see what's happening now in america what i see is oh you guys don't understand there's actually no guarantee that this democracy will work we could be Northern Ireland here in two years. <laughs> you guys don't get your shit together. You think this can't happen here? It could happen anywhere. And, you know, when I see that sort of, that's, that's why the division that's happening here at the moment, I see, like, I try to look at the bigger picture and be like, man, you know, I, I started off by saying in this conversation, I live on a block or in a neighborhood where there are Democrats and Republicans, and I like all of my neighbors. They're good, good people. And I don't give a shit what your beliefs are. I really don't. And I think part of the problem with most Democrats is they have villainized the Republicans and the problem with most Republicans is they have villainized the Democrats and, you know, st stopped seeing each other as good neighbors 
and, uh, you know, good people. Because my experience of walking around and being in the world is there are a hell of a lot more good people than there are bad people. There really are. Most people are good people. Most people want peace. They want safe neighborhoods. They want good education for their kids. They want some help financially so that you're, you're not being robbed when you go to the doctor or the fucking dentist. That's it. They want a car that runs affordable gas, TV, a home, healthcare, and a school for the kids, and some sense of security that you don't, you're not feeling like you're going to get attacked in your home or a bomb is going to go off. And that's most people, because most people, believe it or not, would rather be out on their skateboard or on a paddleboard or fishing or reading a fucking book relaxing. They don't want to be running around with a spear, you know, attacking their neighbors. That's not comfortable. There's nothing really comfortable about that. War is not comfortable. Well, I, I challenge people as well. Like, I wonder how many people go out in their community like, oh, no, where we are, you know, all the blacks and all the whites fight every night. Like I, I think the the paint the picture that they're painting. Of course, you can take a country with three hundred and thirty million people. You can find some assholes, you know, congregate in any pocket in this country. You, know, you can find a few of them and then spread it all over what? the world. Yeah, but Absolutely. so my community here, and I talk about this all the time because this is this is America. I I freaking love this country. And again, forget the people. Like you said, the the country is is stunning. The oceans and the forests and the mountains, but. I think, again, I say this phrase all the time. I truly believe people are inherently good. And I go out into this community and we're very lucky. We've got like four subdivisions around this communal lake that has, you know, a, a football pitch and a swimming pool. And, and then they, the, the families are from everywhere, from Asian nations, from, from the Middle East, from African countries, from, you know, myself, Europeans, um, you know, and then people who are born and bred here and, and our kids get on. And people walk their dogs and they talk to each other and they say hi and they warn each other about some shifty car that's in the neighborhood or what, you know, they just act like good human beings. And I guarantee you, if people shut off their screens and went into their own streets, most people will have the same experience. And then when you reference back to what we're being told America is, it's absolute bullshit. It's a, it's the minority few that are given all the fucking airtime. Breaking news, breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. We have advanced to such a degree as a society that it is unfathom. It's 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 you can't even fathom how ignorant we were. <laughs> you know, just a few hundred years ago, we have it all. We are living the most amazing life right now. People romance the old times it's like imagine living in at a time before novocaine it's like we 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 basically only uh, I, I like to say to my friend as 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 a as a species we're not very long up on our hind legs you know we're just sort of staggering out of this thing where i feel like we haven't really figured out our potential yet but I, I don't know if we're going to last 
or maybe this uh, my other you know my pessimist brain says oh we peaked in the late 80s early 90s and that's as good as we are <laughs> I, I hope the 80s were in our peak oh god <laughs> And, and maybe it is all downhill, you know. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe you think about music and movies, and you know everything that we do. It's like we're living in an age where everything is about the bottom line, and you know, even creativity. I'm a writer and a filmmaker, and it's getting harder and harder to even have, you know, think about what a novel was what a writer was 30, 40 years ago. Oh, there were novelists and we held these people in high regard and and they made, they wrote these amazing books and people would sit down and actually read them. Nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> but, <laughs> they want to, you know, they want 500,000 followers on uh on Twitter or, you know, or on Instagram or something. It's like you have this sort of society that has, uh, I, I, maybe it's our, 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 our attention spans have been, you know, reduced to, to, to that of like goldfish. And we just basically are looking around for the next shiny thing. And that's sort of, I, I wonder if, when we're breeding that into the children that come behind us and this is how they grow up, that I just wonder how that all plays out in the next 30, 40 years. It's, 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 it's funny to think about, you know, all this stuff was supposed to be to benefit us. The internet was this exciting thing that was going to level the playing field and bring about unity and connect, you know, connectivity in the whole world. And, you know, we recognize that we are all one people and we could finally level all the, the barriers and the, the borders and, and recognize that, oh, that guy's a different color than me, but he's exactly the same thing as me inside. He feels and thinks the same as I do. He hurts the same way I do if his daughter falls off her scooter and scratches her knee. He's a human being and I can empathize with with him. And uh, I, I feel like that's the part that is not getting nurtured anywhere. So personally, you, you know, and I haven't talked about it yet, but I will say this, you know, I, I didn't realize I was psychologically damaged and traumatized by my childhood and growing up in a war. And I became an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I did that working construction on and off for about 20 years here until I finally sobered up. You know, 19, uh, thir thir 14 years ago, I was in Times Square uh, begging for dollar bills for uh, coke and drink, and I weighed 115 pounds, and I hadn't eaten in two weeks. I was 39 years of age, and, you know, I wound up shortly after that in a jail upstate for a couple of months, and, you know, I, I had nothing. I had nothing, and, and I sort of, it took me a long time. I got out of that, and I didn't realize that I had sort of just been uh, reacting to my own trauma and uh, self-medicating for 20 years 
when I came out of it, I spent, you know, five years in therapy and meetings and and writing. I, I started writing to save my life. I wrote two memoirs detailing uh, my life and, and, and basically gave myself a foundation. Both books were published by Random House, Orangutan, and that's that. And that gave me a, a, a foundation. And it took me five years to sort of, you know, I was in my mid-40s before I was like, oh, my God. Uh, this is uh, before I had any idea of who I was and you know what what had happened and all of a sudden you know I, I was sober two three years and had a nervous breakdown you know writing about my childhood and my second memoir because I had no idea it all came at me and I was like oh my god I had no idea I literally was running so fast from my own pain that I didn't know that it was there. Now we you you talked about um you know the troubles the a, a really strong common theme with people that struggle whether it's ultimately getting the suicide ideation whether it's deep in addiction is the childhood trauma. You you had the environment that you grew up in. Were there any other elements of your childhood that you know as you started writing kind of showed themselves as well? Sure. I, you know, I, I, I said in my, my memoir, I sort of brush over it in my memoir. I said we must have been made of much tougher stuff back then because we weren't just beaten. We were hammered and kicked and pounded. We were, you know, I was beaten unconscious by a school teacher in school one day, you know, knocked knocked out <laughs> in front of the class and that's an average day so you would get that at school and go home and say the teacher beat me and then get beaten at home for getting beaten at school what did you do there was no there was no and you know i i'm not saying that to blame the society was that way Kids were beaten. That was just kids were beaten at school. Kids were beaten at home. It was, and then to grow up in in that sort of there six six kids at home uh, in our family, and it's like you know you you got in the way, you got a slap, you were loud, you got a slap. That's just the way things were, and you know to come out of that environment in the education and at home and politically with what was going on, you know, the oppression of being Catholic in Northern Ireland, I was like a wild animal. By the time I was 16, I was alcoholic already. First drink I had, I was like, fuck, freedom. Like, yes, somebody gave me, it was like somebody had just switched off the pain and I could feel Gabor Mate says, I've never met an alcoholic, an addict, or a streetwalker who was not self-medicating some trauma or emotional pain. Not one. Not one. And for me, that was the truest thing I've ever heard about addiction and alcoholism. It's just medication. People who are not traumatized, people who are not trying to be somewhere other than themselves in their own skin, don't need, they're not alcoholics. They don't need to do that. That's not a necessity. 
alcoholism and addiction comes out of using these things to deaden actual emotional pain and trauma. And sometimes it could just be repetitive, the repetitive nature of using something to numb yourself. 15, 20 years of drinking and alcohol just to numb some trauma. Believe me, you've got a fucking problem because you remove that shit and you're still going to have to deal with all the crap that because it doesn't go anywhere. Fucking sits right in here on a cellular level. All the beatings. <laughs> well, it compounds it too because what you get from that addiction, you know, whether it's the the financial impact, whether it's finding yourself turning to what would be seen crimes because, again, you're feeding your habit, you're belligerent, whatever it is. Now you're just adding to that trauma, not taking it away. You got a rap sheet. You hurt somebody. It's like it does, and you, 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 and most people, and you can see it when you go to the rooms, you go to meetings, whatever it is, in recovery. And I don't give a damn how people get sober personally. I really don't. Get sober if you have a problem and start looking at the issues. That's my message always. If you if you don't like AA, well then fuck AA. Get sober though. Put down the drink and start dealing with the trauma, whether it be in therapy, whether it be talking to your friend, whatever it is. But getting the alcohol and the drugs out of the way is the first step towards, you know, recovery. And and, and what it does, when you remove the alcohol and the drugs, all the other stuff, don't worry about it. All the other stuff will come up and be and, and, and demand to be dealt with it's just a matter of getting through that over a few years of not drinking a day at a time to get to the freedom on the other side to finally acknowledge and feel the pain that was there and then when you come out the other side there's a level of freedom because you have actually felt the feelings you've felt the pain you've felt the depression you felt the anger at your parents or your environment or your school teacher and then got to deal with that and then come out the other side where you can have healthier relationships with everybody because it's impossible to have healthy relationships until until you can sort of have a healthy relationship with yourself and you know we attract people at our own level of psychological health really and if you're unwell you're attracting other people who are unwell and you can stay in that environment but you know we're in in that regard i think human beings are very 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 simple simple beings we get traumatized and we whether it's alcohol or opiates or you know eating sugar is a fucking huge killer in this country you know and again you take 15 20 years of binging on mcdonald's and coke coca-cola and you know try to fix that shit after you know in your mid-30s or early 40s that can be just as harmful as 20 years of alcoholism and devastating, devastating to the body and uh, self-esteem and all those things. But, I, you know, personally, I was one of those people who shouldn't have survived. My story was really one of providence 
somebody or something was looking out for me and decided it wasn't my time to die. And when I sobered up, uh, I really went at, you know, trying to make something of my life uh, that I, I guess... When I was at the end of my drinking, I was living in a, a fifth floor walk up in Hell's Kitchen and I was alone and I couldn't go four hours without drinking whiskey or I would go into the DTs. I would start shaking and have hallucinations and the devil would uh, appear appear to me in person. And uh, I remember sitting in the bed one night listening to the traffic down in Ninth Avenue. I was broke. I was alone. I'm scared. I'm terrified of living. I'm terrified of dying. I know I have to have that whiskey bottle in my hand. And I had this moment where I thought, if I die right now, everything that I believed I could have been in the world dies with me here. The landlord will come up here. He'll bag my shit. He'll have some young guy bag my crap in a couple of garbage bags and they'll throw it on the side of the street and they'll take my body out of here and I'll just be another footnote in the Irish immigrant story. Poor guy had a drinking problem. He didn't make it. You know, too bad. And I knew it. I felt that. When I looked into the void, what I saw was my own unfulfilled potential. And that looked like hell to me. And I was terrified of what that would be like if I died, knowing that I hadn't done what I was put here to do. So I started, they took me up to a farmhouse upstate to, to dry out and I started writing literally on a yellow pad. I started writing the story of my life in a frenzy. And I sweated for the next five days. I was sweating and moving from one part of the bed to the next and, you know, going through nightmares. And I kept writing. And that was my first uh, memoir, Orangutan. And uh, and I, I, I didn't stop. I, it's been 13 years. Four books, two feature movies, uh, a wife and three children and a beautiful home. <laughs> Since... Uh, I keep I keep going. I keep writing, and uh, I keep trying to I keep trying to be open about my own story because I was almost forty. I was thirty nine years of age, and had lost any possibility. People basically had, you know, I was the kind of guy where you, I, you did not invite me to a party anymore. I wasn't a fun guy. I was the kind of guy people would see coming into the bar and be like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, here he comes again, you know? Like, this is trouble. It's trouble. Because I was an addict. And addicts and alcoholics are not fun people. And, but, and I had lost my mind. I was completely and utterly delusional. Lost my fucking marbles. And that, for me... When I look back and see how mentally ill I was, I, 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 that's why I feel like there was providence involved and some window opened where it was like, oh, dude, you could put your hand on the door handle right here and open the door and walk out of this fucking thing. You could make it out, but you got to do it. You got you to gotta grab it and get out. And, you know, I, I don't know if you know much about how it is but once you get a little bit older, you wake up at 50, 55, 60. It gets fucking harder, man. 
It gets harder to get clean. Now, I got sober at 40 and have achieved everything that I thought might be humanly possible. I fucking wrote, directed, and starred in a feature movie. <laughs> I quit drinking at 39. I didn't even have any fucking teeth left. You know? And it just it just and it just keeps and it just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better. Well, so I just want to interject for a second because you just illustrated something that I talk about a lot, which and I've since day one of joining the fire service, I've always fucking hated the labels again. The bum, the hooker, the crackhead. You know, I mean, these again, it's just same way as Democrat and Republican and, you know, BLM or defund the police or whatever. If you, you pick a side, mask, non-mask, vaccine, no vaccine, you dehumanize and therefore it's easy to hate. That's why the military teach, yeah. you know, certain psychology when they're actually supposed to be fighting the enemy. Um, but so take Colin Broderick, you know, the addict, the homeless guy and reverse engineer back to the toddler, this innocent, you know, little kid who has the whole life ahead of him until a series of events happen. And again, their reasons are not excuses, but they're reasons. They're valid reasons that turned you down a certain path. And as I heard you mention in, um, in a previous interview, you know, there's no, it, it's hard to understand like why some people are okay when some, you know, rise from the ashes early and some, uh, you know, are late bloomers and some never make it out. And they end up being that, that person taken out of an apartment complex in a body bag. And, you know, this audience, we've seen that a lot. Police, fire, EMS, we're the ones that, that do that. We're the ones that they call to check on you and open the door and you've been rotting for a week, you know? So it's, it's heartbreaking, but the, the mental health element of addiction, it's so misunderstood. And you mentioned Gabor Mate, who I would love to get on here one day, but I did have Johan Hari. Do you know who that is? Yes. Yeah. So Johan, you know, his, one of his phrases is the opposite of addiction is connection, you know, and his whole books are about drug prohibition, the, the absolute racism and hatred that that was even founded on. But, you know, how now we throw people with mental health, pro health problems into prison, which then compounds and, you know, the chances of them getting better are, are minimized. So hearing totally. that, hearing the, the depths that you went through, but then you actually having the opportunity to achieve your potential and write books and make films and, you know, find yourself amongst some incredible other human beings that are inspired by you now, that just illustrates my point. That's one human being. So the people walking the streets selling their bodies for sex or begging for change or, you know, um, in a gang... They potentially could be incredible writers, dancers, doctors, nurses, whatever, if they were just given the opportunity. So it's so, so powerful I'm, to me to hear I'm, that. It also, it also, you know, most addicts I've met, it takes an incredible amount of creative energy to stay drunk <laughs> and stay high. That, is, that in itself is a performance. How am I going to get drunk? Today, I don't have any money. Somehow I got to get, you know, and you see some of these, I've, I've met, I've met guys in bars and on the street who were some of the most talented, interesting humans I've met anywhere. And they were just, you know, basically crippled by their own trauma. Uh, but, 
you know, most people have enormous and not just not just addicts. Addict, I, I see a lot with addicts and alcoholics. They get sober and they have this incredible potential. And it's almost like they have this raging uh, enthusiasm because they didn't live up to their full potential. And then suddenly a window is open and the light is on. They're like, oh, my God, is this really can I really do these things? Because once you start getting rid of the fear and the trauma and realizing having some belief in yourself, which is, you know, the greatest uh, feeling of all is to have some sense of uh, belief that, you know, I can, I can. And then have other people say, hey, what do you need to, to, to get there? And we'll help you. And when you get well and people have seen you suffer, doors open, doors open, doors open. People, people want to see addicts get well. People want to see alcoholics get well. There's nothing more, uh, I, th I think probably the greatest, you know, the greatest gift for any family is for somebody who has a problem to get well. What a, that in and of itself, you know, to come back into the family, to come back into the relationships and be a member of society who, even if you don't write the books and, and, and make the movies, but a member of society, somebody on the block who's carrying their own share of the weight. Because this thing that we do, this, you know, going through life, it's difficult, Life's fucking hard for everybody. And if you can sober up and just help shoulder a little bit of the shit for it with everybody else who's out there shouldering it, taking the kids to school, taking the garbage bags out and sweeping up and doing whatever it is normal human beings do, you know, helping a neighbor. If you could be that guy, that is as valuable as any published book. To have your daughter or son look at you and go, fuck dad, it's so nice to see you sober and be at the dinner table with us. What a gift. What a gift that is. And, uh, you know, that for me, part of the reason people say to me, oh, my God, you're so open about your addiction. I'm open because I don't give a I have no shame about my addiction it fucking happened. That's what happened to me. And I'm not going to be ashamed about it. That was trauma. I was reacting to it. The shame is what keeps people in it. Get out of it. Put it behind you and move the fuck on and build a beautiful, solid life. And maybe that solid life is just being a member of the family who's present. Present. Able to listen. Able to share and, you know, as I say, life is life. Life is hard. That's the first. Isn't that the first truth of Buddhism? Life is difficult. Absolutely. Well, and you talk about potential. It's funny. I just posted a, a video the other day of this amazing gymnast, a martial artist. And he does this incredible like backwards flip and he's holding this sword. And as he lands, he draws the sword and everything. And but the post was about, you know, to me, the heartbreaking element of yeah, the, the health of this nation, whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health, whether it's obesity, whether it's back pain. And sadly, there are, you know, again, that environment, the environment needs to be 
anyone who's doing well, reach down and pull someone up, raise someone up with you, create an environment where you're looking for people to help, create an environment that, that encourages people to help. And I don't think that's the case, you know, nutritionally in this country. I think sadly, people are set up for failure, not taking away ownership of the individual, but the environment is set up for becoming sick. You can get food anywhere. You don't have to leave your car. You can use your phone. They'll bring it to your doorstep. Um, but then the potential. So it breaks my heart when I see, you know, so many people that are young. I'm 47. I mean, way younger than me that are just, you know, they're in a motorized wheel, you know, scooter purely from obesity. Not that they were, right. you know, stepped on an IED or something like that. They're just purely eating themselves to that point. And I really think, just as you touched on, that this is a mental health problem as well, a lot of the obesity. But the potential, the human body is incredible. These men and women could be playing with their kids. They could be hiking mountains. They could be taking canoe trips down rivers. They could be skiing in the Alps or, you know, Utah. And instead, they're bound to their house with their, you know, oxygen machine next to them. And, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking. So seeing that potential and understanding that, again, the greedy few if we went back to the small local farms where the food was clean and, and the, you know, the money was kept in, in the city or the county and the local community took care of each other and, you know, the parks stayed open rather than closing them when there's, you know, a pandemic and people, you know, were, were playing football together and all that stuff, that would create an opportunity for people to feel like they really could chase their physical um, potential. If we took away the, the, the prohibition of drugs and made addicts you know, patients made it a medical health problem, then we could create an environment where there would be no shame, be no stigma, and they could go and find help. Because I agree with you. The people, I think, are inherently good. And people, when they're given, when they're just given a, a you know, a, a, a task, hey, you know, or, or ask for help, they'll jump in the chance. You know, you see that on these videos all the time. But we have to create this environment. Ownership is absolutely part of it. But the other part is the people around, you know, willing to, to raise someone up. And I think that's what we as a nation need to unify and fight for is create, create these environments to raise up, you know, the, the poorer communities and give them the resources that they need to help the addicts to, to take care of our veterans when they come home and just be the same way as if you find any, you know, non-derogatory term intended third world tribal community that they do they take care of each other they cook they clean they hunt they nurture the sick that's what humans are supposed to do so your story is so powerful because again hearing the journey that you went through and where you are now you know i think i hope i hope that people get hope from it because i think it's incredibly inspiring i think this is why you were supposed to live so you could you know do what you do now but also be a beacon of light for so many other people that maybe we're about to give up thank you thank you james and you know i i will just i'll, I'll close on this i i was i was thinking about this just in the last couple of days you know we we have a society where everybody is sort of thinking about what can they get and you know i think back to like john f kennedy when he said uh, ask not what you know your country can do for you ask ask what you can do for your country and you know if each each individual and i guess is no greater country in the world uh, which and which is i love it here there's no country in the world celebrates the worth of the individual like America does and uh, and the potential that each human each individual human has and if everybody 
was doing their civic duty with the community and your neighbors and your block and your village in mind, then we would all raise each other up, everybody. It would be a very simple thing instead of what what's in it for me who's coming to help me what can i get what can i what have i done today instead of asking what am i getting what have i done today have i helped anybody did i make a phone call did i ask somebody hey you all right did i listen did i listen you know listening imagine imagine <laughs> absolutely well we have spend so much time having this incredible discussion we haven't really touched on your work that much we i i read church end you talked about moving to the u.s and, and it's a kind of semi-fictional um uh look at that transition and and you know the chasing the british soldier that killed the family member and very very powerful book it was absolutely beautiful so i know we're running out of time so quickly just talk to me about the books that you have out there and then, you know, the, the films. I'd love to just slide in there how you met our mutual friend, Josh Brolin. <laughs> I don't think I've ever talked about Josh Brolin specifically in, in a podcast interview. So this, uh, but uh, when I, when I first got sober, I told you I started uh, writing as if my life depended on it. And, I was I, I, I was I was at a meeting downtown. I had this manuscript uh, about a year after I quit drink, not even a year after I quit drinking. And uh, this guy was sharing his story, and he was saying, "And then I got a public, and then I wrote my story, and then I got a publisher, and then I got an agent, and then I got a publisher." And I thought, oh, my God, I got to – and after the meeting, I waited for the meeting to be over, and he walked off down the street. This is a true story. I didn't know the guy. I, I walked up behind him. I tapped him on the shoulder down on Bleecker Street in Manhattan, and uh, I said, excuse me. I said, I just heard you talk inside, loved your story. I said, you mentioned you have an agent and a publisher. I said – I need an agent. I have a book and I need a really good agent. And his agent was uh, Jean Distel. She represented uh, Barack Obama uh, at the time. So it was like, you know, she's one of the top uh, agents in the country. And I said, uh, I need you to introduce me to your agent. And he said, dude, he's, I, I don't even know you. He says, I, you know, if I, I could do that, then you could, it could be terribly embarrassing. And <laughs> it's a true story. And it sounds very arrogant. But what I said to him was, if you introduce me to your agent, you will forever remember this is the night you discovered Colin Broderick. <laughs> and, and he just started laughing. And he said, are you for real? He said, are you that good? And I said, I am. And I don't know why I thought uh, that I was, but I felt like I'm ready. I, I, and two days later, I was sitting in her office and uh, he got me a meeting and I walked in and sh her and uh, her partner, um, uh, Miriam Goderich, uh, they sat down on the couch and they said, take a seat. And I sat down and she crossed her legs and she says, okay, go, you have two minutes. And I was sitting there and I had this moment where I thought, this is it. This is it. Tell them who you are. Tell them your story. And 20 minutes later, I'm still in there and we're talking and there's, somebody's went and got coffee. And 
And then she said to me, I'll never forget, she said, okay, she goes, I really like you and your story's incredible, but can you really write? Are you that good? And I said, yeah. She said, I want to see it today in my office. And I signed a contract two days later. She signed me to her agency. And uh, they sold the memoir Orangutan to Random House. And I, it was like blew my mind. And uh, one of the first, when the book came out, I was uh, going around doing readings. And I went to Los Angeles to do a reading. And while I was out there, someone said, you got to go read at this Irish bar down in Santa Monica. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to go into a bar and do a reading. And they were like, you got to go. It's a great place. And I remember I get there that night and I walk up and the owner of the bar says to me, uh, she's standing outside waiting for me at the door of the bar. And she said, there's a guy inside at the bar uh, who, who, who wants to meet you, an actor. And I said, who? And she said, Josh Brolin. I said, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and, and she said, you know, Josh Brolin. I said, I'm sorry. I, I've, I don't know who that is. And she took me inside and I saw him and I was like, oh, that's fucking Josh Brolin. <laughs> <laughs> I recognized him, but I didn't know, you know, his name. And uh, we started talking and we started talking about poetry. And he had just been kicked out of the bar the previous week, barred from that bar. And she had actually called him and said, there's a guy coming down to read this book. You should come down and meet him. And that's how we met. And then he was like, I'm going to be in New York in three days. You want to hang out? And he came to New York and we went for breakfast and we wound up becoming brothers. <laughs> it was one of those random bizarre meetings where we became you know he's he, i i consider josh uh a brother he's family Absolutely. Uh, and, and as as much a part of my life as 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 my brothers like i i he, that's sort of where that enmeshed he was best man at my wedding uh, I was best man at his wedding. He's, you know, godfather to, to my child. I'm godfather to one of his children. And we have this thing where we just, you know, there's a lot of uh, love and compassion there for each other. And, uh, you know, he's he, he's also someone who is a writer. You know, Josh is an artist and a poet and a writer at heart. You know, yes, he's a great actor and I, I, I love what he does, but he's also someone I can talk to, you know, probably more than anybody else I talk to about literature and art and uh, theater and poetry. One of the first, the first conversation we ever had was about Billy Collins, the poet uh, who's my mentor. Uh, so that's how I got to know Josh. Um, we've been friends ever since and I don't, you know, I, he's one of these dudes who, you know, obviously he is uh, quote unquote a celebrity and, uh, and, and a big deal. But I think, you know, I, like I, I've said throughout the whole conversation, I don't see people in those terms. He's just a dude that I met that uh, is a good dude and uh you know he he is that guy he's a really good dude absolutely well he was you know again perfect example he didn't know me from adam until we did our our 
podcasts and everything, and he ended up writing the forward for the book. Right, you guys did a book together. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, again, right? I, I mean, just a, just a down to earth human being, and he and he helped with with your films, and and Eden was in one of your films. Is that right? His daughter. His daughter Eden was in my uh, first feature movie, Emerald City, and uh, Josh is uh, an executive producer on uh, my new feature movie. That's uh, the one we're talking about. It's supposed to premiere here in uh, New York in September, and uh, we'll see. It's it's going to be released one way or another in September, but uh, you know it's. It was a movie that we shot just before COVID and then we, it was supposed to be at the Belfast Film Festival and we sold out the theater and then the next week they announced they had to cancel it because of the COVID and it's sort of this movie that it's very interesting about the movie. The movie actually is more timely now than it was before COVID because it the message of the movie is more about uh, it's more fitting to the society we live in right now than it was it was fitting then but it's more fitting now the idea of coming home to uh to nature i think is the the essential you know it's it's, it's a journey of self self-discovery an irish writer returning to northern ireland having not been home for 25 years and uh, he sort of confronted with his past and has to come to you know comes to some realizations along the way, um, but uh, but I, you know as far as writing, I I, I published another memoir uh, that's that about growing up in Northern Ireland. Random House also published that. Uh, I wrote another book, uh, The Writing Irish of New York, which was about a history of all Irish writing in New York and by extension America. And, you know, it has a lot of essays in there by a lot of the top writers in, in my community, you know, Colin McCann, Malachi McCourt, Peter Quinn, you know, people who are, uh, you know, our, our whole community of Irish writers here. And it talks about the history of writing, you know, Brandon Behan and Dunleavy and uh, Pete Hamill and all these guys, but it's also, you know, essays by all these writers and how they became writers and, got first published and all that sort of stuff. And then I published uh, my latest book, uh, Church End, which was a fictional novel. But I don't I don't dwell on any of these things, James. I I'm always working on the next thing. I, I don't sit around like, oh, I gotta go and do these readings or I gotta follow this movie around. I'm by the time a movie or a book comes out, I'm so far into the next story that I don't care. It's going to do whatever it's going to do, and it has no bearing on my life. My day-to-day -day life is I have three kids. I have a 12-year-old daughter. I have a five-year-old boy, and I have a one-and-a-half-year-old child, a boy, Bruce. And, uh, you know, that's my day. I, I take them to school, I take them home, I, I I do some writing, I go fishing. What everything else is doing is irrelevant. I don't get caught up in that. What I try to do is live my life and go fishing with my neighbors. <laughs> That's what I like to do uh, now. And I try to simplify my life. I like my life. I like. I love my family. I have good friends. 
I have a great relationship with my biological family. My parents are still alive. My, I have two brothers who live here in America. You know, my, my family unit is very close. And, you know, my wife and I have a great relationship. We, we, we spend a lot of time as anybody with parenting three kids will tell you it's a full, that's a full-time job. You know, we don't have minions who come in and parent these children for us. You know, we wipe their ass and, you know, cook dinner and get them out for school in the morning, get them dressed. That's that's just full on. I have so much admiration for parents. But for me, coming to being a parenthood later in life has been the greatest gift of all. Forget the books and the movies. Like, my God, hearing your kid laugh. My, my kid, I, I have three kids. None of them ever seen me drunk. They have no idea. You know, the, my my boys will read the, the, that memoir, Orangutan, down the line, and they'll be like, holy crap, that dude was fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colin, I just want to say thank you. It's been a you know great conversation, and we need people like you. We need people who are transparent and courageous with their story. And I love even what you talked about with the book because it's kind of like how I have in mind, like I'm thinking about another one now, it, the, the focus can be on, oh, how well is it doing? Is it selling? Is it being reviewed? And, and it is, it's, it's like another social media thing. It's distracting. Yeah. So getting that next project going, I think sounds like a, a, a really good mindset to have. But um, yeah, I mean, just just for coming on today, I mean, like I said, I've loved the books that I've read so far. The the latest uh, film, Bend in the River, I can't wait to see that. I watched the the trailer before we started recording. Um, but thank you for thank you for coming on, telling your story, and thank you for showing people like just you know just hang on that you have so much more to give, and you know, hopefully, the people around that are doing okay look for that person that's hurting. Just when you want to give up, how about not? How about reach your hand out one more time? Just one more time. One more time. And, you know, anybody, I, I, as I always say, even in meetings, you know, the only thing I've done perfectly for 14 years is just not pick up a drink or a drug and put it in my mouth. That's the only part that I did perfectly. Forget about, you know, all this program and steps and meetings – wonderful do it if that helps and get the therapy do it all the only thing that i've done perfectly is not put alcohol or drugs in my system and just keep just keep living get involved be part of the be part of the community <laughs> go go out there and uh, talk to your neighbors say hello to somebody and uh, come back to the world because we need you we need we need everybody. We need we need the Democrats and the Republicans and the fucking Catholics and the Protestants and the Jews and the blacks and the whites and the Asians. We need everybody. All of us. We're all in it together. And until we get that shit down, <laughs> we're in trouble, you know. 